Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today's episode is an HHTR flashback favorite. We're talking about perfectly imperfect accidental masterpieces, careless geniuses, and fortunate mistakes. Let's join the conversation with Dr. Sharini Pillay that originally took place in September of 2014. Dr. Sharini Pillay is a world-renowned Harvard psychiatrist, brain expert, and award-winning author of the motivational book of the year, Life Unlocked, Seven Revolutionary Lessons to Overcome Fear. He is the former director of the Anxiety Disorders Service at Harvard's McLean Hospital, consistently voted one of the top five hospitals in the United States. He graduated as the top overall medical student, won more awards during his residency at Harvard than any other resident, and he is regarded as a pioneer in the field of applied brain science for corporations, self-help, schools, food, fashion, yes, fashion, and the arts. Srini is also CEO of Neuro Business Group, voted one of the top movers and shakers in leadership development in the world, and he's noted for his uncanny ability to translate complex brain science into usable tips, tools, and techniques to help us lead more fulfilling lives. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Pillay. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It's really great to be on this with you. Oh, yes, it's great to have you here. Let's just jump right into this genius brain that we all do possess, because I, I don't believe that genius is reserved for the well-renowned scientists, but it really everyday people possess flashes of genius from time to time. I really believe that. And, and, and I also think that when we're thinking about genius, we need to think more broadly in terms of what we care about. Because I think the first association when people think about genius is IQ. But I think we really need to be thinking also about emotional intelligence, social intelligence. So depending on the kind of genius that you want to manifest in your life, I think that every person 
has access to his or her strengths and that we can access these strengths. And I think the good news, and I think this is really the best news of the century, is that the brain can change and we can do something to change our brains. So from my perspective, I think I'm totally on board with your view that, that for every person, there are moments of genius that we can access. And I think the more we understand about how we can access this genius, the further we can go in our lives. Indeed. And, and you mentioned something that is very valuable to this conversation is the identification of our strengths. And certainly from positive psychology, the background from which I come, that, you know, we say once you identify your strengths and you, you are able to make these values happen in action, you A, increase your positive emotion, you increase your happiness, but really what I hear you saying with the application of strengths is we increase the probability of genius or the flashes of genius. I really do think so, and I think for a number of different reasons. I think, um, you know, first of all, when I think in terms of brain science about what positive psychology is, and, you know, there's a lot to say about that, but one of the things that I like to draw people's attention to is that life is about where you put your brain's attentional center. And the way I like to think about this is as a flashlight. Because if you put your flashlight on things that are going to distract you away from your genius, you're likely not going to access your genius. Whereas if you put your flashlight on things that are more positive, things that encourage your genius to manifest and surface, you're much more likely to access your greatest intelligence. So from my perspective, there are huge advantages, I think, to positive psychology and to putting yourself into a frame of mind where you can access that genius. The one thing I will say, which I think is a little different from some of the messages out there, is that sometimes I feel like people put themselves under too much pressure to be positive. And in fact, studies have shown that positivity essentially does not mean that you have to go around with a fake smile the whole day or go around beating yourself up because you don't feel like you're positive or forcing yourself into being positive. Positivity is really about understanding that regardless of what's going on, there is a potential solution that you can access. And so if something difficult is going on or if you're angry, there's a way to be constructive about that and not fake a positive emotion with the underlying positive feeling that a solution is imminent. And I think for a lot of people, you know, we, we, we tend to get immersed in problems themselves. And so the problems suck up all of this attention. And what happens as a result of that is that there are not enough attentional units in the brain to solve the problems we need to solve. So while I think it's important to recognize problems, it's also important to be able to take our attention away from those problems and place that flashlight in our brains on the solutions. I think what you just shared is so important because one of the things that I love to emphasize through this show and the work that I get to do is that that there are blessings of adversity. There are gifts of the negative emotions, especially fear, which I know this is an area that you've written about and researched about, um, that there are positive uses for fear or constructive uses for fear and other emotions that we um, earmark as negative when in fact it's about that perspective or that flashlight direction that you speak of. Absolutely. You know, I, I think when it comes to, to a lot of negative emotions like fear, the effect essentially occurs on an inverted bell-shaped curve, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, initially, fear can actually be a driver. It can motivate us. It can help us finish tasks. It can help us attend to things we need to attend to. If there's danger around, it can be a signal, and we can actually sort of do something with this emotion, and it can help us 
access that genius because we recognize that we're running out of time. So in particular situations, I think fear can be very motivating. However, this, positive, this, this driving effect can reach a peak, and then you start to see the negative effects of fear. And part of the reason for this is that fear is processed by the anxiety center in the brain uh, called the amygdala. And again, you know, although I'm, I am myself completely in love with the brain, I don't feel like one needs to know the brain, the names of the brain regions to appreciate this. It's really just important to know that there is an anxiety center in the brain. And this anxiety center connects directly to your thinking brain. So when you're thinking about how to access your genius, if your anxiety center is overactivated and you have earthquakes, you start to have these aftershocks that you feel in the thinking brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. And as a result of this, your ability to think clearly is compromised. For that reason, we need to be aware of when fear is overactivating the anxiety center, and we need to be aware that if we're not able to solve a problem, this anxiety or fear may actually be subconscious. And even though you're not literally feeling afraid or anxious, this anxiety can basically mess with the anxiety center and in turn mess with your ability to solve problems and access your genius. And for that reason, I think it's important to address the fear. I agree with you. And, uh, and I, in fact, it makes me think of post-traumatic stress. I work a lot with veterans who are returning from war, and I work with others who are in addiction treatment. And I see this uh, constantly with fear and anxiety and, and the trauma that's reoccurring and flashbacks, et cetera, et cetera. And once you explain to somebody what physiologically is happening to them, when they are in this mode, they can, it's, it's what I've witnessed is they're able to better take command of themselves again, rather than let it get the best of them, that they're no longer hijacked by what's going on, but they can take control with their rational mind. Absolutely. You know, what, one of the things that comes to mind when you mention that is the research, and there's really extensive research that's been done on the subject of fear to show that it's not necessarily fear that's the problem but the way we respond to fear. So, you know, the moment we have fear, we tend to have fear of fear. And what the studies show is that fear of fear is the real problem. It's not fear. So if you're afraid and you have the ability to be mindful, if you have the ability to simply watch that fear rather than judge yourself or rather than having a reaction to that fear, that, that's actually okay. And the same kind of research has been shown for worry as well. You know, there are two kinds of worry that have been studied, type 1 worry and type 2 worry. Type 1 worry is worrying, you know, just simply worrying about something. I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my own productivity. I'm worried about whether I have enough money. Type 2 worry is worry about worry. So rather than simply worrying, you're now starting to judge yourself. Oh, my God, I can't believe I'm so stressed. You know, I, I, I just can't get my mind of something. And when you start to worry about worry is when the real negative implications Start, start to matter. So one of the things I like to say to people is when you're afraid or when you're worrying, rather than trying to grind that to a halt, pay attention to what you think about your own emotions. Because what a lot of people, I think, realize only too late is that we judge our emotions and we judge ourselves when we have these negative emotions. And it's that judgment of those emotions that actually eventually interrupts your ability to access your own genius. How beautifully put. No, I'm a type one worrier. 
I just, <laughs> most of us go on, you know, uh, you know, just the, the, uh, the worry about what is going to happen. It's the worry of the future, not necessarily the worry about the worry. And I do see how the worrying about the worrying can really be problematic. Absolutely. And, you know, initially, I know when I first came across this, I thought, you know, what, why are they spending so much time researching this? And then I realized that, you know, the, the great advantage of having a thinking brain is that we can think about a whole lot of things. But there are times in life when feeling what you're feeling and allowing yourself to feel what you feel is much more likely to take you to your goal rather than judging it, stopping it, reacting to it. And that's the whole point of that, that particular body of research. And that's and that point is well taken. You know, there is nothing like uh, a fine wine. You know, if one is going to get oneself twisted up into a pity party or in worry, it's better to own it, acknowledge it, witness it, and then move through it than deny yourself the ability to really experience what it is that is bugging you. I mean, I know that sounds very simple, but it's effective. Well, it, it's effective, and actually studies show that with certain kinds of practice, you know, if you practice refocusing and you practice reframing and a few other really key things, you can actually decrease the, the negative impacts of the sphere. And when you decrease the negative impacts of the sphere is when you release your attention and your thinking brain to solve your problems in life. We're going to head out to the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Serini Pillay that originally took place in September of 2014. We are talking about creativity and genius, as well as fear, anxiety, and other ways that we can view our emotions and help ourselves if we find 
ourselves in a state of worry, upset, or dis-ease. And my guest is Dr. Srini Pillay, and he is an expert on brain science as well as leadership development. And Dr. Pillay, we're talking about, let's just touch upon the success-oriented brain for a moment and what is different in people who are successful in life that um, sets them ahead of the pack? What have they got going on under their human hoods? You know, one of the things that I think is so counterintuitive about the success-oriented brain is that, is that people who are successful often fail much more than people who fail. They just are more resilient and able to recover, judge themselves less, and are able to move on despite those failures. So I think that success to a large extent is dependent on your own response to failure rather than the number of times you succeed. And I think if you speak to anybody who's had a successful path, they'll tell you that they practice more and they fail more. And because they fail more, they're able to succeed. So, you know, I think that's the first thing that, that I would highlight about that. The other is, is something that, that's brand new research that, that's really out that I think is fascinating, which looks at, you know, who are the people who reach their goals and why do they reach their goals? And there's, there are a couple of things here to highlight. One of them is that in the brain, we set our intentions. And once the brain knows what those intentions are, it ought to really navigate us toward our goals. Well, one of the studies showed that when people cannot convert their intentions to action, so let's say you're thinking, you know, I really want to be in a better relationship. I really want to make much more money. I really want to figure out this creative idea so that I can, I can actually make it work. There are people who are absolutely brilliant about this, but one of the variables that prevents the conversion of intention into action is a deeply held feeling of powerlessness. So I think a lot of people, because they only see the end results of success, will believe, you know, I'm not like Oprah. I can't be like this. I'm not like Bill Gates. I can't be like that. You know, I'm not like the wealthy person down the street. I'm not like the person in the neighborhood I just drove by. But the reality is that that sense of powerlessness actually prevents the conversion of intention into action in the brain. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember when we're thinking about the success-oriented brain, because in my opinion, the success-oriented brain believes in possibility and is not necessarily interested in probability. You know, when, when people say to me, well, you know, what's the likelihood I'm going to make a million dollars this year? Or what's the likelihood I'm going to double my salary? Or what's the likelihood that I'm actually going to feel happy because I'm actually a grouch. Well, you know, when you talk about likelihood, you're actually forcing yourself to relate to the norm. And I think for most of us, I think the whole point about genius is that it is exceptional and we can access it by ignoring the norm and looking at the exceptions. So the one piece of advice I'd have around that is that if you're thinking, how do I get to my goal, rather than thinking, you know, someone in my position is probably not going to get there. I would recommend thinking, how does, how does the exception get there? And what can I do to emulate that exception? What I hear you saying is that our self-limiting beliefs, the negative chatter that goes on in our self-contained minds, is the obstacle that we need to put away. We need to lock it away, in essence, if we want to achieve some of these goals that we desire. Very much so. In fact, the, the, there's another body of research related to how you reach your goals that tells us that in the brain, your conscious goals compete with lots of unconscious phenomena. 
and that one of the biggest determinants of whether you reach your goals or not has to do not with the strength of your action, but the strength of your self-perception. And I think for every one of us in our brains, you know, the brain is sort of like a museum where you hang pictures in that museum, pictures of yourself throughout the course of your life. And if at a particular point you conceptualized yourself as being not enough, if you said, well, you know, I don't really have this, if you somehow feel that your academic grades are a reflection of your intelligence, you hang that picture up, and then no matter what you try and how hard you try, because that picture is, is the person who is, who is actually creating that action, you're not able to create a successful action. So one of the things I like to say to people is, take a look at the pictures that you have hung up about yourself in the museum of your own mind, and get rid of the pictures that are limiting you and hang some fresh pictures up that are related to your own possibility. Mm, I love that. I really love what you've just said. And it really is about um, stepping into that place in which we desire ourselves to be. And I know that sounds a little bit of woo-woo perhaps to, to some of our listeners. But really what I hear you saying is that we are more powerful than we give ourselves credit for being. I really think so, because I think, you know, just to get a little bit philosophical about this, people often think that they don't know how to get somewhere. But if you speak to most successful people, you know, I think Steve Jobs was one of the people who admitted this, it's very hard to actually know a method of going somewhere. Really, what we're talking about, and, and you know, we just spoke about this in the break, the real, the real genius that, that, that you can access is the ability to look within yourself rather than to simply rely on external methods. And when you look within yourself, you find things that will move you forward, sometimes gradually, sometimes fast. But if you, if you pay attention to that and choose to learn from your mistakes rather than judge yourself, you're much more likely to move ahead. Agreed. And, and in that self-reflective um, space that you're speaking of, it's almost as if we need to become a better observer and a better witness of our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, and our desires. That, you know, to have that knee-jerk reaction, well, I've got to get out there and make something happen. Well, what I hear you saying is, no, 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 we perhaps need to slow ourselves down and be more willing to experience what's going on inside, which then allows us to better formulate a plan to move forward. Very much so. In fact, you know, one of the connections between creativity and, uh, and genius is the fact that creativity actually uh, turns on, a focus turns off the creativity parts of the brain. So when, you're, when you are sort of, you know, urgently pursuing something you're in a focused way, your creativity can actually be decreased. And so when you stop in the way that you're talking about and allow for your own consciousness to gather itself and make connections, you often can find a solution to things that you would not be finding in focus. So both focus and unfocus really need to work hand in hand. And to that extent, sort of, you know, charging ahead needs also to be accompanied by periods of rest. You know, it's a lot like a piece of music. You know, imagine if a piece of music had no rest in it. It would just be going on and on and on and on and on. And I think if we conceptualized our lives that way and we gave ourselves a chance to slow down, to make connections, accessing this genius and this creativity is actually enhanced. And this brings us to the buzzword of the day or the buzzword of this era, which is mindfulness. You know, how we can uh, create more mindfulness or bring a mindful practice to daily life. 
in well, a simple way? There are a lot of different ways. You know, I, so firstly, I, I want to say that we now have extensive research to show that, that mindfulness is really uh, something that, that decreases activation in the anxiety center of the brain. So if you do engage in these practices, it can actually change your brain and it can actually change your brain. And when it does change your brain, it can, it can release you to a greater form of genius. So one of the things that I think uh, a very simple way to practice mindfulness is simply, you know, you don't need to be in some kind of yogic position. You, you don't need to be sort of, you know, sitting on the ground with your fingers together. You can be sitting in a chair, calmly close your eyes, and rather than focusing on that mental chatter, which is often really randomly generated stories by your brain, it's, it's really amazing how your brain can just make up all kinds of stories and join dots that don't actually need to be joined. So it actually makes sense from a purely biological standpoint to ignore the mental chatter and instead take that inner flashlight and place it on your breath. And as you just watch yourself breathe in and breathe out. Again, this sounds absurd initially, but if, when we think about this biologically, and there's a lot of research to back this up, simply paying attention to your breath can actually bring about this state of mindfulness, which allows you to reach that more unfocused part of yourself and allows you to become more creative and access that genius. And if you need one more piece of science to back that up, one of the things I think we need to recognize is that breathing and emotions often crisscross in the brain. So when you change your breath, you can change your emotions as well. And as a result of that, you can change the clarity of your thinking. Beautifully said. We are out of time. To learn more, please visit neurobusinessgroup.com, on Twitter, Srini Pillay, and on Facebook, Neuro Business Group. Let's take that quick pause. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to HHTR's Flashback Favorite, focusing on perfectly imperfect accidental masterpieces, careless geniuses, and fortunate mistakes. My next guest is Sarah Lewis, and this 
episode originally aired in October of 2014. Let's have a listen. And my guest today is Sarah Lewis. She is a cultural historian and a Dubois Fellow at Harvard University. She is the author of The Rise, Creativity, The Gift of Failure, and The Search for Mastery, published by Simon & Schuster. It is a layered, story-driven investigation of how innovation, discovery, and the creative process are all spurned on by advantages gleaned from the improbable, the unlikely, and even failure. And I want to just um, toot her horn a little bit more because Sarah Lewis has served on President Obama's Arts Policy Committee. She is a trustee of Creative Time, the uh, CUNY Graduate Center, the Brearley School, and the Andy Warhol Foundation of the Visual Arts. She has also held curatorial positions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Tate Modern in London. Good morning, Sarah, and thanks for joining us. Oh, good morning, Lisa. What an honor it is to be on this show. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it is a pleasure because I love what you are doing. I love the research that you are doing, the spin that you are giving on how we find that joyful place in our lives, that sometimes it comes through the unexpected. It comes through the failures, the disappointments, the the hard knocks and the skin knees. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The book is entitled The Rise, really, because I wanted to honor the capacity of the human spirit when you look at the life stories of inventors, entrepreneurs, and artists and athletes, you often find that they really did derive irreplaceable advantages from difficult circumstances. And I thought it was about time that we really focus on how we can all learn from that. Beautiful. You, you write about athletes, entrepreneurs, explorers, Nobel Prize winning physicists, and notable artists, both living and past, that They've been propelled to mastery um, by several things. Talk a little bit about the ingredients to success. Mm, great question. What I started to notice when I looked at icons like William Faulkner or Paul Cezanne or Nobel Prize-winning scientists was that they were not fixated on success, meaning a label that the word confer- world confers on you for an achievement, but instead mastery. If success is an event, mastery is a journey. What they were focused on were all of the near wins that would allow them to kind of course correct and do better the next time. For example, Paul Cezanne didn't sign 90% of his paintings because he felt that they were all near wins. Of course, those works are now acclaimed by various art historians and in different museums. When William Faulkner, for example, published The Sound and the Fury, He didn't feel that the work met his own goal, despite the praise it was being given. So he rewrote sections of that book and then published that as an appendix to the novel's later editions. So it's all to say that what I found in looking at these individuals, over 150 over the course of my four years of research, was that mastery was their goal. And mastery, I think, is what we really are all seeking, not merely the label the word world confers on us with the word success. 
I agree with you wholeheartedly because when we are self-mastered, when we have the ability to take dominion over our lives, whether it's through our creativity, uh, through our relationships, uh, mm-hmm. through achieving goals and a life that we um, aspire to, it takes on a very different meaning, that it's not mm-hmm. about just having another egg that we get to put in our basket. It implies that there's much more of an experiential process going on. Exactly. It really does get back to this notion of authentic happiness. You know, it's an internal landscape that you're walking on when you are engaged with mastery. It's about closing that gap for yourself between where you are and where you want to go, regardless of what the world says about your achievements. And I think that puts us in touch with our deepest self. In fact, it really taps into the true nature, our true nature of self. And Mm -hmm. what can be said about the creative human endeavors that we pursue? Well, what I found is we often tend to think of human endeavors as success built upon success. When you look at Nobel Prize winning discoveries, athletes who are standing on Olympic you know, podiums winning gold medals, is that their journey is really about corrections over time, kind of the way that an arrow you know, goes towards its target on a curved line. That's really what human endeavor looks like. For me, the process of riding the rise made me realize that we need to rethink the true story of triumph and mastery and endeavor to include all the circumstances we would rather avoid that allow for these beautiful corrections that offer these irreplaceable advantages. And even failure needs to become part of our conversation. Um, One time I interviewed Gretchen Rubin, who wrote The Happiness Project, and she talked about wanting to experience the fun of failure. And I think that this is an important concept to talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. Why should we revel in our blunders? Well, there are gains, you know, lessons, insights that we arrive at when we do engage with blunders that can come no other way. Now, I should be clear, the word failure, it's hard to talk about without dealing with how much of a misnomer it really is in our lives. The term failure was first meant as a term for bankruptcy in the 19th century in America. And it was not meant to apply to identity, you know. But we use this word anyway. And when we do, I think we kind of need to qualify it because life is not as static as bankruptcy, right? We never reach a dead end. And I think that's why the word becomes a forced fit. There are blameworthy failures. There are praiseworthy failures. There are brilliant failures, you know. When you look at the lives of scientists, of anyone who's doing something creative, none of their work can come from an experience that doesn't involve the potential for failure. Why? Because if that weren't the case, they wouldn't be taking a risk, and risk is what allows us to go into new terrain. Failure is a difficult word, I know, and in some countries in particular to engage with, but it's really critical for really rethinking the true nature of triumph. Well, I like what you just said about about the word failure. Uh, in, in my practice, I often speak with clients about instead of looking at what they've experienced as failure, perhaps it can be reframed to just be a limited success or an opportunity for education or an opportunity mm-hmm. to learn something about themselves that they had not known before. That's right. 
And in fact, most individuals I interviewed, whether it's Ben Saunders or, you know, historical figures I would look at from Samuel Morse, Frederick Douglass, no one called their experience a failure. People always created another word for it. (laughs) 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 I I like it. I I do like it. How are innovations, success, and new concepts found in the most unlikely of places? Well, we find um, all of these different traits in people's life stories when we start to look at them more fully, not tell the sort of sanitized version of them. For example, how many people know that Martin Luther King received C's in oratory class during seminary, right? And went on to lead this nation with the power of his spoken truth, you know. How many of us know that Fred Astaire in the 1930s received this as the response to his audition for RKO? Can't sing, can't act, balding, can dance a little, and then went on (laughs) (laughs) to do what he did. You know, Duke Ellington would say, I merely took the energy it takes to pout and wrote some blues. You know, Thomas Edison told his assistant, incredulous at the inventor's repeated attempts to invent the incandescent light bulb, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. When we, st- <laughs> we start to Brilliant. Truth, I love it. You know, all these different stories are in the lives of our icons who we mainly look to for examples of triumph. But what they also teach us is that failure is as important. All these difficult circumstances are as important. What is not being said about major achievements in our world? Is it what you've just shared, really, that how many, how many failures or how many blunders lead up to that ultimate success, or is there more? Well, uh, that's a large part of it. But it's not as uh, neat and sort of pat to say that we need to look at blunders. It's, it's more that we need to look at the improbable. What I mainly found in looking at these stories and interviewing these individuals is that the very opposite of what you would think it would take was just as crucial for the tried and true sort of ethos of how to achieve something great. For example, mm. when I spoke to Nobel Prize winning scientist Andrei Geim and Konstantin Novoslav, they discovered the first ever two-dimensional object on the Earth. Imagine that. That's revolutionizing the electronics industry and nanotechnology. They found it through almost childlike play. So much so that when they submitted their findings to the preeminent journal Nature, it was rejected because they didn't think they could possibly have a Nobel Prize winning discovery on their hands. They had found this two-dimensional object with scotch tape and a pencil, you know. <laughs> wow. Wow. Sarah, we're right? going to need to go to a break. Um, and we're, when we come back, I want to carry on our conversation about, you know, finding um, our achievements in the world in kind of unexpected ways. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. My guest this morning is Sarah Lewis. We're going to head out to that break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... 
Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to HHTR's Flashback Favorite, focusing on perfectly imperfect, accidental masterpieces, careless geniuses, and fortunate mistakes. Let's rejoin that conversation with Sarah Lewis that originally aired in October of 2014. And we're here today with Sarah, Sarah Lewis. She is a cultural historian as well as an author. She's written the book, The Rise, Creativity, the Gift of Failure, and the Search for Mastery, published by Simon & Schuster. And prior to the break, we were talking about the strategy of discovery for Nobel Prize winners. And Sarah, you were telling a story about how they made their discoveries with scotch tape and a pencil. Exactly. I was just explaining that childlike play was as important for these preeminent scientists as serious work, you know, and that they found the first two-dimensional object on the earth with scotch tape and a pencil, which, you know, the findings seemed so improbable that the journal rejected their, their study, which Andre Geim loved to mention in his Nobel Prize winning speech, as you can imagine. <laughs> but what they have inaugurated is really a model for us all. It's called Friday Night Experiments, time where they permit their laboratory to engage in sort of the wonder that comes with the new perspective we all have as children. Isn't that beautiful? I, I love it. And so all of their award-winning discoveries have come from that bracketed time, 10% of their laboratory time going to serious play, as you might call it. But, but what the work has also found is that there are many other just counterintuitive ways of creating um, an endeavor that lead to a pioneering achievement. So whether it's you know, play for serious work, um, I also found that knowing when to quit you know, is as important as grit, you might say. Or, mm. And all these things are really foundational, I think, for understanding human endeavor, um, surrender, for example, is as important as, as tenacity. And for me, it became a way of just seeing life more fully as I started to explore these different examples. 
Well, what I hear you talking about is a, is a new language or a new paradigm for our personal exploration. And you use the word pioneer. That was one of the words that caught my attention. And the other thing that is so important is this element of play and, and, and experiencing the world with, with that childlike curiosity and wonder and delight that stimulates not only these great discoveries, but happiness along the journey. Exactly. Exactly. The example comes to mind as you said that, and that is the explorer Ben Saunders, the first Arctic explorer to ever go to the North and South Pole, solo and on foot. And from him, I wanted to understand how he stayed happy, ultimately, you know, during this arduous feat, and how he, of course, managed to arrive at that achievement. And he talked about the power of surrender, you know. It was really beautiful to talk with them about knowing what you can control and what you can't as a way to maintain strength and fortitude. And for example, out there, sub 60 degrees, carrying a sledge that's, you know, 20, uh, 200 pounds, excuse me, on his back, dealing with Arctic flows, that means that he can trudge for 12 hours one direction and have erased his gains from the day by just sleeping because the ice floats perhaps in the other direction. You know, it's mind-numbing stuff, but what he learned was ultimately that you maintain strength by just knowing what it is that you can't control and focusing only on what's going to keep you focused on your goal. That should be, or maybe it is, a universal law, right? Yeah. <laughs> to just, just give it up, you know, and we don't mean give up. I don't think no. either of us are inferring that. No, I think surrender I see not as giving up, but giving over to something much larger, you know, than ourselves. Oh, beautifully said. Let's talk a little bit about this languaging that, 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 that you're sharing, because it really is a very uplifting, um, integrated, whole way of approaching um, the experience of living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And we do need terms to understand new models, you know, in the same way that we need figures who show us the way so that we can also walk down the path. For me, the term surrender is a very important sort of new term to, to understand this distinction we just made. Um, I think we might need a new word for play, <laughs> given what the Nobel Prize winning scientists have shown us about the importance of it. There's been some incredible work done on the importance of play uh, for not just learning, which is critical, of course, but for the ability to solve problems. NASA, the, their Jet Propulsion Lab, has found that they want all their engineers to have play history and their backgrounds. But the word play is so associated with children that we don't associate it with serious work. And Andre Geim in his Nobel Prize um, interview mentioned that you know adventure is maybe a cognate, but we need another word for what we're really saying just the ability to let yourself be a deliberate amateur on the road to mastery. We need another word for what, the, what that's all about. So that's a lot of what the work of the RISE is, to get us to think differently about these key concepts. Well, I know for myself that when I go out, I am a, a mountain hiker, and when I go out and I am high up in the mountains and I am really testing the limits of my body, 
and in that flow state, which I would love to, to chat with you about is the next uh, question. Um, I get that sense of I'm, I'm playing, I'm using my body. I am processing and, and creating while I am out there. I'm, I'm most oftentimes the best ideas come to me when I am in that state. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I think flow is at the heart of this whole concept. What is it that allows us to stay in flow? Is it, what about our focus allows us to stay in flow? You know, I love the embodiment that you're describing. Um, it's, it reminds me of seeing these archers up at Columbia University and watching them practice for three hours, you know, trying to aim to hit a target. And the level of flow that I saw them get into by caring and almost loving the process of trying to adjust for wind speeds, adjust for their own fatigue, you know, and pulling this bow and arrow, and seeing themselves as a, in a period of kind of constant reinvention as an archer who just hit a 7 but knows they can hit a 10 and just hit a 9 but knows they can hit a 10, you know. It's really beautiful to, to watch what that flow state is about and to then model it for yourself. Indeed. And one thing I want to add about the creation of that flow state or the flow space is that when we mm-hmm. are in it, the um, daily toil of life, the things that we normal, normally fret about and stress about, you know, our bills, picking up the children, um, incomplete tasks, you know, the to-do list that didn't get done, things like that seem to melt, that that, that that kind of reality is temporarily suspended so we can be fully immersed in, in the experience. We've, we're all in, in flow. Exactly. Absolutely. It's, um, you're reminding me of what happens to musicians when they improvise, what neuroscientists have found is actually happening in the brain, the sort of flow state they get into. Isn't it incredible to know that during that state, the mind is barricading itself from self-critique and self-judgment, you know, that, that kind of nagging voice that's also telling you <laughs> to, to pay the bills and do other things, so that you can have what is most closely approximated to a dreamlike state. The mind is most close to the REM state of dreaming when we're improvising. I think it's very close to the, what, how we feel when we're in a period of flow. And I dare say, maybe I'm going to open a can of worms here, that there is, uh, to me, when I'm in that state, there is the equivalency of a love experience. And I don't mean a romantic love experience. It's that pure love form of there's no judgment, there is no holding back. You know, all the things that we think of when we think of being in relationship, are we loving or not being loving, when we're in that state, there is that kind of love light that is on. Absolutely. I completely agree. If love is mainly appreciation, though, we're in that moment truly appreciative for all the work that we're doing and for what we're creating. Absolutely. Let's talk about the gift of being underestimated, which is another one of your language examples, which I love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, well, I... It came to me at the very end of writing the book that what mainly motivated the journey was, from a very young age, feeling as if I was being underestimated for being a woman in different scenarios, for being a small woman and petite, you know, uh, for being a woman of color, 
all sorts of things. But what that allowed me to do was to gravitate towards and find models for myself of men and women who had achieved something incredible and were also underestimated. So my orientation, really, you know, as a teenager, began um, really through what might, some might, people might call difficult circumstances. I, I love it when people underestimate me now. It gives me a kind of fire, and it also puts me in lineage, I think, with all the other men and women who've gone on to create something incredible. I agree with you. I, I absolutely agree with you because myself being a woman and mm-hmm. um, being underestimated quite a bit in my mm-hmm. life, it, I think that it allows me to approach life almost humor, humorously, you know, like, okay, <laughs> let, 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 let's, see, let's see what I can do here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's, well, you know it's, what's interesting a, about it? No, it's no, a what? On. Say again? No, it's just that you can see who people really are when they underestimate you. It gives you a kind of double vision, which is also interesting. Yes. <laughs> you know? Agreed. Agreed. Um, we are, my goodness, my goodness, we are almost out of time. I want to talk about a couple more of these little languaging bits that you've shared with us. Creating safe havens. I think that mm. is huge. It's so important. Critical. You know, you have to have, you used the word dominion earlier that I love. You know, you have to have a private domain so that you can have dominion over what you are creating so that everything is embryonic when we're developing it. In the same way, we would not let an embryo out too early. We need to not release our work prematurely and give ourselves the benefit of development time um, before subjecting it to critique or allowing it to be praised. Mm. Very well said. And lastly, because we are almost out of time, let's talk about the importance of grit. This is a buzzword lately in mm-hmm. um, the news and in research about the, how important it is to be gritty, to have chutzpah. <laughs> I love it. That's right. Oh, that's great. Moxie, all these words, absolutely. Moxie. Yes, yeah. moxie is a great word. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the University of Pennsylvania psychologist Angela Duckworth has done incredible, now MacArthur-winning work about the critical importance of grit for achievement. She's found that it's a, grit is the best predictor of achievement in educational context, more so than talent or IQ alone. And grit is the ability not just to have self-control, but to withstand failure feedback over years, even decades, in pursuit of your aim So grit is critical, but what's also important is to be nimble about it, to know when you might need to quit, in fact, right? And that's what she and I spent some time talking about in in The Rise over the few years that I interviewed her. Nimble, that is another great word. And we could probably do a whole other segment on on nimbleness. So we're going to have to (laughs) save that for our next visit. I want to thank you for being with us today. To learn more, please visit sarahelizabethlewis.com. On Facebook, Sarah Lewis, The Rise. And on Twitter, it's Sarah Eliza or Eliza Lewis. Mm -hmm. And you'll find all of those um, uh, social media buttons on Sarah Elizabeth Lewis's main website, sarahelizabethlewis.com. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. 
It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guests today, Dr. Sharini Pillay and Sarah Lewis, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.